HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're talking organization. Not mise en place or keeping your knives in a row, but labor organizing. If any restaurant worker is listening to this and is like, yes, I want something different, but I don't know where to start. First step they just need to do is to find one of us and get plugged in. As independent contractors, they can't directly tell people, you know, when or, or where to work, but by using sort of gamified nudges to push people, that is sort of how they um, move the workforce around. Tune in to Meet in 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, this is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're going to talk about fish. And with me uh, to make that important discussion is Kate Missouri. Uh, Kate is the program director of an organization that I've wanted to put on this show for probably five or six years. It is called Eating with the Ecosystem. Uh, Kate spent five years in the nonprofit world teaching marine science to students of all ages on the West and East Coasts, uh, though she is a native of Maine. Um, and then she went back to school, got herself a master's of advanced studies in marine biodiversity and conservation from the Scripps Institute of Oceanography, where she focused on sustainable seafood and fisheries. And Kate, when did you start uh, working with eco uh, eating with the ecosystem? I started working with eating with the ecosystem in November of 2016. So it's right. been a while now. For about it's been years. a while. And as soon as that organization came onto my radar, I kept thinking to myself, I got to have these people on. I got, and then you and I met at some cook, uh, chef's collaborative event um, yes. at, uh, at Acme or whatever the muscle, American muscle harvesters, American muscle harvesters. Yes. Right. Right. They're another outfit I want to interview, but for my other show, um, the <laughs> other one that you, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's kind of nuts doing the two shows, but whatever. It's, it's been a lot of fun. So thank you so much for joining me today. It's it's great to have you on the program, finally. Um, and so let's kick it off with you uh, telling listeners about your organization, because this is uh, local to Rhode Island. It is not a national organization yet. 
we're, we're not national, but we are regional. And so um, yeah. our mission is to promote what we call a place-based approach to sustaining New England's wild seafood. Um, mm-hmm. So we focus on um, kind of increase. We have five anchors that um, are really our principles of sustainability. One is proximity. We want people to eat local seafood. Um, right. But then the next one is symmetry. We want people to eat not just one or two local species, but really the full diversity of local species, but in proportion to their natural abundances. So species that are more abundant in our local waters can be a bigger part of our diets. Species that are a little less abundant are kind of a smaller part of our diets. And so we eat in balance and allow the ecosystem to kind of maintain more natural balance within their marine food webs. Um, And so we do a lot kind of promoting those lesser known but abundant um, species that are part of our local waters. And there's, there's a couple more anchors in terms of sustainability about taking care of our e- ecosystems that are producing our food and are adapting our diets to changes um, as they happen and supporting our local fishing communities. Um, but that's kind of where all our work is centered around. Right, right. Now, I want to dive right into this thing about bycatch, because um, when you talk about promoting lesser known species, when fishermen go out with a big net and they bring in, you know, thousands and thousands of pounds of fish there's a lot of fish that people aren't familiar with, which I assume are some of the fish that you're trying to promote with eating with the ecosystem. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. And, you know, bycatch is really basically anything that wasn't targeted. So if you right. went out to go catch squid and you also caught butterfish, then the mm-hmm. butterfish would be considered bycatch. Um, it was, you know, unintentionally caught along with the squid in that case. Um, Now, some people do target butterfish um, Mm -hmm. because they're absolutely delicious. And so if you're then using them and you're able to, as a fisherman, you're able to sell those, there's a market for your product. Um, As a consumer, you're able to eat and enjoy it. Then that bycatch is not necessarily such a bad thing. When it bycatch becomes an issue is when it's going to waste or when it's a species that, you know, you didn't intend to harvest um, and there's, you know, regulations out there to protect that species because maybe you didn't intend to harvest it because it has low abundances or something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. That's when bycatch becomes an issue, more of an issue. But if you're catching, you know, say you're targeting one species, but you catch two additional ones, but you're able to sell those two additional ones and they're, you know, abundant species. They just don't have, you know, quite as much maybe market demand as what the other one that you were targeting initially. Then if you create market demand for those other species, then they're not really, you know, a bycatch anymore. They're just one of the species that you happen to catch and sell. Now, so the thing about that bugs me about bycatch um, is okay, say you're out there and you're fishing for scup, but you get butterfish as well, but you don't have a market for it. Are you just going to dump it? Is that what happens? It gets thrown overboard and that it fish depends. is dead. Um, and it depends right? on the fishery. So most fisheries have some kind of, or a lot of fisheries have um, some kind of regulation in place that, and like that basically doesn't allow you to throw back as many like if the fish are going to die they don't allow you to like throw back as many of them so it depends on the fishery that you're participating in some of them Mm -hmm. will require that you land the fish other ones will allow you to like um to throw fish back um certain fisheries like like a lobster fishery for example um if you catch smaller lobster or you catch some crabs or something like that you can throw those those crabs 
or smaller lobsters back alive and they're perfectly fine. So it de- it depends on the fishery kind of you're participating in um, yeah. and and the regulations that are are part of that. But um but yeah, if you say you caught I guess like you know butterfish and you were trying to catch I think scup is the example that you use. Yeah. Um if if you landed you know, you, I guess you'd have an option. You'd have an option of either, you know, throwing it back or you land it. And most of the fishermen will land it um, if they have room on their boat um, to continue, you know, to keep it on there. Uh, yeah. And they'll try to get some kind of money for it. Maybe the price, they're not targeting it because the price is, you know, really low. And so it's not really worth their money to target. But a lot of times if they bring it in, they'll still get some money for it. Um, and butterfish are often actually a little bit more expensive than scup. Um, you get a little bit better price than, than you do for scup. And so in that case, they probably would land it. Right. I, I'm just I'm just using those words because those are the names that came to my to my feeble brain here. But I, I guess what I'm trying to get at here is is that there's an awful lot of fish that gets pulled in in a net, especially if you're on a very not necessarily so much a smaller fishing vessel, but on one of those really big trawlers and they're bringing in hundreds of thousands of pounds of fish, uh, you know, say in a week out at sea. And that fish ends up in their hold, and there's a lot of bycatch in that fish. That fish is wasted, right? Like that fish gets thrown overboard if it's not what they're targeting. They're not able to use that fish or bring it in for other purposes. Or is that just a construct I've made up out of whole cloth in my own crazy Um, brain? In the U.S., um, so like I'm not going to like include kind of like necessarily like the international fisheries or right, whatever because um, yeah. they, they have, you know, different rules and everything like that. Um, but say um, in the U.S., like a lot of times the fish is sorted on deck before it even reaches the hold. Um, oh. because, so um, they try to return anything back to the ocean that they're not going to keep pretty quickly and they try to ensure as much you know sustain um as much survives as possible so if they right. are able to say they catch like a shark or something that they didn't intend to catch um they try to get that shark back in the water kind of as quickly as possible and hope that it does you know does survive and sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't but a lot of times it doesn't just go directly into the hold and then like sit there for a long time because that okay. would be it would take up it would take up room in the fish hold, which would not be a good thing in terms of the boat. You want room in the fish holds for your fish and the ice um, to, you know, and it's going to start to smell things up and things like that. So you want to make right. sure your fish is of higher quality because your fi- if your fish is of higher quality and it's what you want it to be, then you'll you'll get better prices also. Um, so, um, so yeah, they try to sort things on deck as soon as it kind of comes on board. Um, even when it is in large volumes, they've, you know, they'll, they'll have crews kind of, sorting the fish and trying to return anything that they don't want back to the water. Um, but yes, there is definitely sometimes things do die. Um, and it's, it's part of it. It's part of it. Yeah. But then you could think of it as sort of food for other fish also, right? I exactly. Mean, yeah. Somebody I mean, if you, else is going to eat If you see a that. fishing boat, a lot of times there's a huge flock of seagulls following it. Sometimes there's other fish mm-hmm. or oh, yeah, um, other, that. you know, seals and things like that that are following it. So the fish yeah. does go back into the ecosystem and does get consumed by someone, probably just not humans. <laughs> well, I'm actually feeling a lot better now. Thank you for explaining that. I really appreciate it. Um, so one of the things that you guys, I mean, you guys 
work with scientists and NOAA, and which is the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric uh, Agency. If people don't know what that is, that's what predicts weather and stuff like that, weather, weather and climate patterns and so forth. But you work with a lot of different partners, but obviously you work often with fishermen. So I'm, I want to focus particularly on some of the challenges that fishermen face right now in terms of, um, you know, still making a living. Because <laughs> it's pretty yeah. – I mean, fishermen here in, the, in face- New England – In New England, it's a very dicey situation for fishermen, right? Yeah. I mean, being a fisherman is a really hard job. Um, I don't think people really realize quite as – quite that you know that as much um but it's a really difficult job there's you know long hours involved but there's a lot involved in being a fisherman you need to not only know how to catch the fish um and in order to do that you need to know you know how to run a boat um you have to know you have to know some biology and ecology you have to know kind of where the fish are and their behaviors and that kind of thing you also have to have an extensive knowledge of the management process and and where you know how you can participate in that because if um, that's what controls kind of what what you can catch and what you can't catch. Um, mm-hmm. You have to have business knowledge because all the fish, a lot of the fishermen are all kind of really small independent businesses um, to a certain extent, um, and so there's a lot of knowledge kind of that way. Um, and then you know you're dealing with things like you know lot losing working waterfront and having to advocate on your behalf for that and stuff like that. So being a fisherman is definitely a, a difficult job, um, and. You know, depending on what type of fisherman you are and how how you sell your catch, like there could be other roles that you might also play. Like some fishermen are involved in selling their catch direct to consumers. And so then you have to get into the marketing of your catch and things like that. Um, And so, yeah, there's a lot involved in being a fisherman beyond just catching the fish. The catching mm-hmm. the fish part is the fun part. That's why a lot of fishermen get into um, get get into the career. Um, but there's a, <laughs> there's a lot of other kind of aspects involved um, that are sometimes not quite as fun. So what kind of? I mean, it's a terribly dangerous job too. I don't. I, you didn't emphasize it is, that. But yeah, I, I happen to know that from fish. The few fishermen that I do know, um, some of them have had terrible accidents of varying types, lost their hearing uh, from having the horn sound off too. You know, like I. I can't even describe going overboard. There was one fisherman I interviewed years and years ago who had a little boat out of um, a couple of boats out of um, a point Judith. I can't remember his last name, Steve. I, uh, anyway, his boat capsized right off of block Island, you know, total loss on his boat, barely made it out with his life. You know, I mean, you know, stuff like that happens pretty often. Um, I suspect, it can, yeah. So, Fishing yeah. can be a really dangerous job. Um, you see, I think I saw actually even this past week there was a boat that was sunk somewhere off Massachusetts, um, and oh, really? luckily the crew was saved. But um, but yeah, it, it happens, and it's 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 a dangerous job. Um, it it is indeed. So now, when you guys work on a project with fishermen, what 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 are you what what kind of projects are you looking for to have with them, and what do you feel they're going to get out of that? type of collaboration. So we tend to work. So there's there's people that do work on like the more fisheries research side where they work with fishermen to collect the data about the different you know species and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. We work a little bit more on the market side of things. Uh-huh. Um, and so when we're working with fishermen, we're um, you know asking them to harvest certain species with, um, for us. So we can like pilot different supply chains. So 
or um, mm-hmm. so we can understand the supply chain kind of a little bit better, or we can try to you know create new markets for some of these products. Um, and so right now we're working actually pretty closely with the Commercial Fisheries Center of Rhode Island, which they're another nonprofit um, in Rhode Island, and they represent I believe nine different fishing um, commercial fishing organizations in the state. Um, oh, right. But we're working with them on a um, seafood donation program where we're just this started during COVID where um, some of the prices were really reduced for a lot of the local species, especially at the beginning of COVID. But, you know, mm-hmm. markets have been really hit and have continued to um, the fishermen have continued to feel that impact, you know, even now. Um, and so we've been working with the Commercial Fishery Center to purchase some of those that fish from the from the fishing from the fishermen or from the seafood dealers um, and then donate it to we have um, seven different community based organizations who are also our partners on the project. And so we've been able to donate it to Rhode Island um, families in need. And so it's been a kind Fantastic. of a cool collaboration where we're creating kind of a, a new supply chain that didn't necessarily exist before. And we're creating a little bit more market demand for some mm-hmm. of these species that maybe didn't have much market demand, especially during this past year. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, so let's talk a little bit about our import-export uh, market, because I've read, you know, lots of articles about, you know, that talk about how we are exporting 60 to 80 percent of our wild-caught seafood. And that's the guys who are going out in the boats. We're not talking about aquaculture here. We're talking about wild-caught. And then we import about the same amount, although the, that is almost always a farmed product, farmed salmon, farmed tilapia, farmed shrimp, and so forth. Those are the things that Americans seem to really like. Um, how is it? How is it that is it because fishermen make so much more money on the export market for their far, for their wild caught fish? Is that why they're we're sending so much of that overseas um, to say Japan or you know other countries that consume a lot of fish and maybe don't have same resources we do. Why is it that the uh, equation is so skewed um, that we're that Americans are eating so much farmed fish from other countries and we're and yet we're exporting all of the good stuff? <laughs> I just don't understand that. <laughs> yeah, well, so me and me and you think it's the good stuff, right? And we're we are yeah. like we want that delicious local fish. We realize how tasty it is. We're willing to. That's what we want. We want that local fish. Um, but that's not the case for most Americans. You said it, Katie, when you said that you know most Amer we're importing a lot of kind of farmed um, seafood products as well as other you know seafood products that. that Americans do want to eat. So shrimp and salmon and tilapia, those are things that people are a little bit more familiar with. Um, Maybe they grew up eating or they're just, if they are eating seafood, that's like the only species they really know. Um, And that's what Americans tend to demand. Is it because Um, it's cheaper though, Kate? Is it because it's cheaper than the wild caught? Like wild caught salmon is going to be, you know, nine, 10, $12 a pound Farmed salmon's going to be eight, nine, right? I yes mean, there is no. a price. So I'd say yes to a mm-hmm. certain extent. If you look at like right now, if you went into a you know a fish market and you saw wild salmon for sale and you saw farm salmon for sale, and you um the you know the farm salmon is going to be cheaper in ninety percent of you know the time. Um, and so yes, that's maybe part of it at the current state. But like why we're farming salmon or why we're farming shrimp or tilapia yeah. and things like that um, is because that was what we wanted to eat, and the wild populations mm. couldn't keep up with the demand um, oh. in a lot of time in a lot of cases. And that's not 
always the case. Um, but like the reason that we farm salmon is because that's what people want to eat. And that, and we're saying, okay, all we want to eat is shrimp and salmon. So that's where the efforts have gone into in terms Mm. of, you know, science and research and business development and stuff like that in terms of how do we farm our salmon? How do we create more of it? So the, cause that's what consumers want. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's the same, you know, with shrimp and stuff like that. And then they've, you know, figured out ways to do it cheaper, um, and things like that. And that's not necessarily always the most ecologically friendly way to do things. Um, it's not, it's definitely not, you know, the best for your local fishing communities or things like that but it is it tends to be less expensive so it's you know at a cost um but that cost is not necessarily being felt by the consumer who's paying you know 8.99 a pound versus you know 15.99 a pound or Or even 20 i mean while i mean you know fish (laughs) can be 20 25 i mean what i always think of is uh you know the many uh articles and and um you know, things that I've read uh, about uh, farmed fish, especially something like shrimp, which tends to come from uh, Southeast Asian countries where the labor force is, if not actual slaves, uh, certainly captive, paid extremely low wages. And that's why we get such a low price. And then the other thing I think we don't think about a lot, and tilapia is farmed. I saw that myself in Vietnam visiting there about seven years ago. Um, you know, I'm up in the mountains on the on the Chinese border and every other farm has a little, you know, sort of, I don't know, 15 by 20 foot puddle dug, <laughs> uh, you know, in their, in the side of the hill and they've got tilapia farmed in there, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, you, <laughs> you know, I don't want to, I'm not eating that stuff. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, it's it's uh, there's so many labor issues and then there's also the transportation issue you know it's like it's so artificially low as a price point that it's you know it it upsets me just in and those issues upset me as of course, every, every bit yeah. as much as as the failure to support the local um economies but um i i digress as usual you see what would happen if we didn't have the outline i'd be all over the freaking <laughs> map here like literally um, let's talk a little bit. But then you second. also asked about like, you know, like why do some, you know, some other countries in, so like the fishermen, a lot of times are not the ones that really are actually, feel, you know, re- they're not making those decisions, right? They're not making those decisions. They're sell- so the way that a typical, you know, um, kind of fisherman work, like the way it works is they go out, they catch the fish and then they come back and they land the fish at a dealer. Um, right. and so there's, you know, shoreside dealers who basically they'll, buy the fish from the fisherman, the fisherman receive what's called like the boat price. Um, and then the fishermen, the, and you know, dealers, I think sometimes get like a, a bad rap. Dealers are necessary. <laughs> like the, the fishermen, most of the times do not want to sell their own fish. There's a lot of work that goes right. involved, like, into selling and transporting the fish and stuff like that. The dealers have a very necessary role. Um, but so their job is they'll pay the fishermen um, a price for the fish and then they'll, then depending what type of dealer they are or where they are in the supply chain, they might process the fish themselves. Um, they might just put it on ice and then transport it to another, um, you know, location where it will get distributed. They might distribute it themselves as whole fish. So it really depends. And they might export it to another country. It really depends on kind of where they are in the supply chain. But the dealers will, you know, s- Typically, they can sell direct to a restaurant. Um, it depends on what where they are, but they might sell overseas. Um, and that would be 
determine kind of um, where the market is. And so certain mm-hmm. species and um, just have a really great market demand elsewhere. And that's because consumers in those countries do value those fish and they do recognize that they're delicious um, and they're willing to pay for it. And so if someone in Japan is willing to pay, you know, two times, five times the value that someone in the U.S. is willing to pay, then then that dealer is going to try to get the most bang for their buck and they're going to sell that fish over there. Um, sure. And, you know, that can trickle down to the fishermen as well in terms of like if the market price is all of a sudden, you know, $20 a pound versus $10 a pound, like the fishermen might receive, you know, let's say three or four or five dollars a pound um or something like that for their product instead of a buck and a half or whatever instead of a buck and a half or 35 cents or um you know whatever the 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 price is and so the those foreign markets can be very important to a fishery um and in some cases for example like you know i was i grew up in maine lobster is a huge fishery there um it's you know, one of our our biggest fisheries is really important to the state's economy and lobsters eaten locally. It's also distributed, you know, across our entire country. You can eat lobster in restaurants in California and things like that. But then it's also sent overseas and there's a huge market, you know, in Europe and in Asia and, you know, they're developing a market in the Middle East for it and stuff like that. And that's, you know, that's a part of the business. Yes. And and I'm not, I don't mean to throw shade on it. I, I think that's all fine. Um, I, the only thing that, you know, is perplexing to me is why we can't um, persuade Americans that some of those products that are so popular overseas and command that premium price, why we, you know, where we are in terms of encouraging Americans to, to recognize that tilapia, farm tilapia, farm salmon, farmed shrimp coming from Southeast Asia and Asian countries or whatever is maybe not as good a choice as buying sea robin off the coast of you know, the Northeastern seaboard Island, or something yeah. like that. You know what I mean? It's like, like I this, do. I know exactly I know what you mean. And that is what your organization is trying to do. I recognize that, but it's just like, it's such an uphill battle. And one of the things you, you touched on there was about processing. And that to me is, is a critical part of the process of, of the, of the, of the whole sort of food chain thing. And I was going to ask you um, before we take a little short break here, but My expertise lies in the meat industry. I wrote a book about it. I've studied it extensively. I've been doing this show for many, many years, and I've done lots of interviews with producers who, you know, poultry, pork and and cattle. But it and and one of the biggest issues that all three of these um, proteins face is the processing and distribution issue. And the processing and distribution has been winnowed down and consolidated into you know, sort of a handful of very, very large companies. And I wondered if that was the same in the fishing industry. Do you see that same consolidation and loss of local production uh, facilities, distribution channels that I see in the, you know, the national animal agriculture industry? You do see, um, you definitely do see, you know, some consolidation and stuff when it comes to processing. It's not quite the same as meat. Like I think of, you know, like I don't know the meat industry quite as well, but like I, you know, during COVID there was like all those shutdowns kind of, um, uh, in like, you know, chicken processing or like meat processing plants, you know, in the Midwest or wherever that was. And that was like almost all the country's meat was like, you know, goes through that. It's not quite as consolidated where there's like this Mm -hmm. one major like processor kind of, but it is, um, it is still, I would say a limiting factor. 
um, mm-hmm. or whatever in the, the local seafood scene. Um, there's processing, you know, is expensive. Um, yeah. There's... <laughs> And there's a there's different very I guess different degrees of it here and depending on the size of your business like you might have just a hand processing for example so you might have a few guys who in the back of your business are cutting fish by hand just with a knife and that that takes some skill so that's like a yep. skilled labor um and but you also if you go to New Bedford, for example, you might see like some of the little bit bigger businesses, they might have a machine that can fillet the fish. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but there's still people that are running those machines and are, you sure. know, doing steps kind of along the way. But like there's, you know, that's a different scale up from just having a few guys in the back of your fish house cutting fish um, right. or whatever. And, or like um, there's in like lobster and crab, you know, fisheries, there's like the picked meat um, side of things where yeah. like they might have a high pressure, high pressure processing machine that can kind of extract the meat. And that might cost, you know, over a million dollars, maybe a couple million dollars to, for that machine. So right. yeah, there's a lot of variation in it. And I think processing is, we, we do kind of see loss of processing here. Um, people talk about you know, like a lot of jobs going overseas and stuff like that. But part mm-hmm. of that is, you know, that we as like as Americans have kind of chosen not to do those those more manual labor type jobs. Um, and so in terms of labor for, and we're also not, you know, willing to pay that much. Um, yeah, for I think our, that's our the food. real issue. Um, yeah. Yeah, we're not willing to pay that much for our food, and so yeah. to pay someone here to, uh, a living wage to to you know cut fish and stuff like that can can be difficult to find enough people, um, yes. or to be able you or be able to charge enough for that fish to make it kind of work. Um, right. And so it's definitely a, a processing is definitely a struggle here. And then there's other issues in terms of processing related to like wastewater, for example, and how you treat that, and if we have enough um, kind of facilities to handle that or like different things like that and so there's limitations in terms of that as well or just working waterfront space you know space on the waterfront is being turned into condos and things like that that used to be maybe fish processing plants Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. very interesting we have to take a short break for a sponsor drop here we'll be right back with kate missouri from eating with the ecosystem stay tuned we got lots 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 more to talk about This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. 
Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Okay, so Kate, uh, we were talking about bottlenecks in distribution and, and processing specifically. I'm going to jump way ahead because, as usual, overprepared like mad for the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but um, let, let's talk a little bit about um, what what do you think would uh, be the most beneficial changes to the way the fishing industry operates now? Um, I, I don't want to get too bogged down in the Magnus-Stevenson Act, uh, which was passed in the 1970s, which moved fisheries from working in tournaments where they caught as many of one fish all at once and then the price got driven down to the catch share program, which I believe prevails today, but and has never been particularly popular either. Um, what So from the point of view of legislation or management, what do you feel would be uh, the best to um, say revive and um, you know inject some uh, capital into the fishing industry as it exists now on both east and west coasts, or are they well, two I, totally separate things? Should we just stick with the east coast since that would <laughs> you know um, better? I I feel like I you know I spent a little time on the west coast and I think that east and west coast do see you know some similar issues and and some different issues, but I mm-hmm. think you know one thing that you see. Um, in most places is kind of um, that smaller scale community based fisheries or fishermen um, sometimes have, you know, a harder, it's harder (laughs) um, for them to survive kind of. And I think that a lot of times those smaller scale community based fishermen are the ones who are really doing things kind of the, the right way. They're the ones that are trying to take care of the resource and take care of the ecosystem. Um, they're the ones that are trying to feed, you know, their local communities and support those local businesses and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So I think it has, you know, a great impact on your economy. Um, when you have a strong, you know, sm- smaller scale community-based fishing fleet. Um, and, and like when I say smaller scale, that doesn't necessarily mean the boat can't be big. It's more about like the, you know, who owns it and who's fishing. Um, Mm -hmm. like if the you'll you'll see kind of in terms of consolidation and that's where catch shares, I think, you know, you mentioned catch shares and those coming in, um, where it allowed fish permits like the right to go fishing to be traded um as a commodity um and you know the idea behind it was okay there's a certain amount of fish like you can it's an open market you can trade and but what happened was you had you know people that that don't actually go out on the boats who don't actually like fish that bought up the permits and then sold those rights to fish to, Uh. to the fishermen who were actually fishing. And I think, you know, when you do that, when you have someone else who's not actually really a part of the fishery controlling the fishery that then that can have, you know, negative impacts on the fishing community and, you know, even the ecosystem, because they're not as connected as the people that are out there on the water Mm -hmm. and actually, you know, seeing, what's happening. And so I think, you know, making sure that we're creating policies that are supporting our smaller scale community based fishermen, I think is very important. And I think in terms of research, just making sure that we have, you know, really good science and really good data, because that's how we make informed decisions. And I think you see a lot more collaborative research now than um, that's, you know, continued to grow. And I think that's been a really good thing where the fishing industry is working with the scientists to, make sure, you know, sure that we do have 
best data, um, that we do have correct information that helps inform those decisions that go into management. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know there was a trend at a certain point where, um, you know, uh, I remember doing an article for Food Arts Magazine about 10 years ago where uh, the, the boats were actually, um, they had a QR code uh, that was attached to their fish. And so the QR code was on the menu and then the, the customer could scan the code and see which boat had landed the fish. And, you know, and that was supposed to be the wave of the future. And uh, somehow that didn't really catch on. It didn't seem to me. Um, but I thought, it, are still I thought doing it was it. an interesting, I thought it was a really interesting model because it did allow consumers to understand that it wasn't some giant, you know, Russian trawler out there, you know, scooping up millions of pounds of fish. You know, it was like it was a bunch of guys out on a boat, you know, with maybe a couple of nets or, you know, they're doing a long line or something like that. And, you know, it was just it just made it more real for people. Um, and it, and it yeah, also and you do supported see the, the QR codes. Boat kind of happening in some places like Red's Bass is a company that's they're based in Massachusetts um, but they they also buy fish in Rhode Island and mm-hmm. um, and other places and the, you know they you do use QR codes and so if you buy fish from them you do see like a little QR code that you can scan you get like a picture of the fisherman that caught your fish and there's other you know seafood businesses that have have done that as well but there's other ways to kind of connect with your fishermen also without you know personally knowing that fishermen right like like, you know that can be that can be hard sometimes i think if you are lucky enough to live on a on the coast and you are able to buy direct from your fishermen that's an awesome experience and that's great and we do have here in rhode island we've got some you know great fishermen who are doing that and are selling their fish um and there's a facebook group you can follow to learn more uh, you know about and what they're selling and when they're selling and you can buy fish direct from, from them but not not all of us you know, live on the coast, or maybe that doesn't work with, you know, your shopping style or whatever. Um, And so I think that, you know, if you can ask questions at the place that you buy your fish, whether that's a grocery store, or a fish market, or, you know, if you're ordering online, even, um, you know, there's all these opportunities now to order fit, you know, seafood online and stuff like that. If you can ask questions of the person selling your selling you your fish, and say, you know, like, I want to buy, you know, local fish. I want to buy, you know, this diverse array of species. I don't want just, you know, one or two fish mm-hmm. available. Like I care about these values. I want to be supporting, you know, community-based fishermen or things like that. And you express those interests um, and you back that up with your dollars by actually making those purchases, um, right. then I think, you know, that's how you change things. We ran a citizen science project um, a couple of years ago now where we had citizen scientists looking for local seafood species in the marketplace. And I think one of the cool things that came out of the project that we really didn't anticipate at the time, we were just trying to collect data on the availability of a lot of these species. But we had all these citizen scientists going into fish markets and asking for this wide diversity of local seafood species. And what they reported back to us was that these markets started carrying more of these local species, things like whiting or scup or um, skate or things like that because mm-hmm. they were asking for it. Um, and, cool. and so I think if you do create demand as a consumer, you can you can change kind of what your market is selling because um, ultimately the market wants to please the customer. They want to, that's how they stay in business, right? It's, if, of course. If they're, you know, making their customers happy. And so I think the customers do actually have more power than, than they think that they do. Very interesting. I, well, that, that sort of ex- helps to um, 
you know, unravel that question of like, how do you get a fisherman to buy a fish that nobody's heard of? You know what I mean? It's like, you really do have to start with that citizen scientist going into the grocery store, the restaurant, the fishery, fish market and say, got any of this, you know, got any whatever, sea robin or, you know, I don't know what else. Is, I think Scup is yeah. one that you told me about. Although I see that all the time on Derek Wagner's menu because he's a big proponent of eating. He is. Derek's great about serving scup and all the other delicious local fish. (laughs) For anybody who's local to New England, that's Derek Wagner who owns Nick's on Broadway in Providence, Rhode Island. Highly recommended as a restaurant. He's also been a guest on this show several times, so you can always look him up in my archive. Um, Kate, we're going to have to wrap it up, but I want you to tell people, uh, you know, this is your moment to promote yourself and your organization. How do people learn more about what we've been talking about? Uh, How do they learn more about eating with the ecosystem? And, um, you know, what else should they do? If they go to our website, which is eatingwiththeecosystem.org, we've got all kinds of information on there about our organization, but also about our local New England seafood species and some of the research projects that we've done. We've got resources for the home cook, like recipes mm-hmm. and things, um, and how to fillet fish guides and things like that um, for people that do want to try eating kind of a wider diversity of species at home. Um, so I suggest checking out our website and following us also on Instagram or Facebook. Um, and we post a lot on there as well. That's great. And let me ask you this before I I let you go. Are there other organizations, uh, either, uh, farther down the East coast or on the West coast that are doing something similar to what you're doing? Um, there's a lot of organizations who promote, you know, local seafood in, in their areas. Um, I think that, and there's other um, like we're part of the local catch network, for example, that um, they have a list of there are a bunch of different seafood businesses and um, organizations and individuals who all kind of promote values based seafood. Um, mm-hmm. And they have a list of core values and we're part of the local catch network and we subscribe to those core values and and follow them. Um, and so I think, you know, there are organizations like that, that if, you know, listeners are interested in learning more about like an organization or a business in their area, they could go to the local catch network and they have a map um, of, of all the different businesses who are part of that network. Very And cool. eating with the ecosystem is one of their core values. Right. Right. Fantastic. Listen, thank you so much for joining me today. This was very informative, very helpful to me. You really cleared a lot of stuff up for me. I'm so glad we got to have this. I'm so glad we had this talk. <laughs> Yeah, me too. <laughs> anyway, I'm sure we'll run into each other one place or the other <laughs> now that I'm local. Yeah, so. hopefully we'll have um, some in-person yeah. events now. So. <laughs> that would be, exactly. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you to my sponsor and my wonderful engineer, Amanda. We'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in this week, folks. It's right. been a good Thanks, one. Thanks, Katie. So long. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. 
and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.